Our next speaker is Scott Hales. Scott Hales has been a historian writer for the Church History Department since 2015. He currently works as a writer and story editor for Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, the new four-volume narrative history of the Church. He has a BA in English from Brigham University and an MA and PhD in American Literature from the Uni University of Cincinnati. He's published several articles, and I'm just, just going to turn the time over to Scott Hales. Well, hello. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here speaking about saints again uh, at Fair Mormon. Um, speaking here about Saints Volume 2. However, before I begin, I want to answer the question that is on everyone's mind right now. Uh, this is how I am related to Brian Hales. So, no need to ask him or me. Occasionally he gets called Scott, uh, but I get called Brian all the time. I don't know why, because we don't look anything like each other. I mean, maybe aside from the glasses, but you know. So, so there's that. So, <laughs> let's... Let's just uh, set that aside. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit today about Saints Volume 2. Um, we've already heard a little bit about it uh, at this conference on Wednesday from Angela Halstrom, who's a, a fellow writer and literary editor. She and I have uh, worked hard together on this volume and on other volumes, and uh, we're excited. Right there? Okay. Great. Uh, we're excited to, to get this book out. and. Uh, the, the second question on everybody's mind is when is Volume 2 coming out? Uh, and so this is what we have. So this is what I can tell you about Volume 2 right now. That it covers church history from the expulsion from Nauvoo uh, to the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. The release date we were hoping to release it this year, but books take a long time to write and revise and especially to translate. So we expect to see it in the early spring of 2020. So a little bit, a little bit longer. But uh, for those of you who want to get started reading it now, fortunately, we, we do have full, two full chapters up on the Gospel Library app uh, currently. So uh, how many of you have already read those two chapters? Okay, good. A fair amount have, have read those. If you haven't and you're interested in it, just go to your Gospel Library app and you can open up uh, the church history uh, folder and you'll see, the, you'll see the, the link for, you'll see the box for Saints Volume 2. So two, two chapters. Uh, we plan to publish, uh, we have been publishing excerpts from the first three chapters in the Ensign and Liahona, and then we plan to, I think, publish six full chapters before the final publication of the book um, next year. Uh, also, as Matt McBride talked a little bit about yesterday, uh, as we, when we publish uh, Saints Volume 2, we'll also be publishing uh, 68 additional church history topics, uh, and also a, a few additional videos in uh, that are in connection to uh, the narrative of, of Saints Volume 2. So that should answer some of your questions on that. Uh, before we talk more about Saints uh, Volume 2, though, I want to talk uh, briefly about just this, the, uh, the success of Volume 1. Uh, just by show of hands, how many of you have read either all or part of Saints Volume 1? Okay, that's also very good to see. Uh, here are just a few statistics. As of, I believe, the end of July, uh, we have sold uh, 409,743 copies of Saints Volume 1. Uh, and that's in all 14 languages. Most of those have been in uh, English, but also in Spanish and Portuguese, I think, have been the, the biggest market for these books. 
Uh, also, more than one million readers are reading Saints on the uh, Gospel Library app, uh, which is kind of neat to think about. Uh, first of all, that 400,000 people have purchased a book that they can get for free uh, on the Gospel Library app. It's just remarkable that, that people are, are reading it. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people are also listening to the audiobooks. Uh, the audiobook, they're reading uh, the church history topics and also tuning into the, uh, the Saints podcast. Uh, and also, just by show of hands, how many of you have been able to listen to the Saints podcast? Okay. If you haven't yet uh, had the treat of listening to the Saints podcast, I recommend taking a look at it, or taking a listen to it. Uh, you can find it uh, on iTunes, but also through the Mormon channel um, and, and some other venues. And it's just a, it's a great podcast that talks about each of the chapters in Saints. Uh, it's a conversation with historians, that sort of thing. Most episodes are about 30 minutes apiece. Uh, also, uh, it, it was kind of funny, before we published Saints Volume 1, uh, a lot of people would ask the question, are people actually going to read this book? Uh, you know, are church members really going to pick this up and read it, especially considering how big it is? Uh, and then also other people were also asking, yeah, and, and do church leaders actually want, church, church leaders actually want people to read this book? Are they just kind of publishing out there so that they can say they published it? And the answer to both questions was, yes, we do expect people to read this, and yes, uh, church leaders do want you to read this. And we've had some great, um, We've had a great response to it. Uh, here's just a few of them, and I, I admit that these are hand-selected. We have had some negative reviews, but overwhelmingly, and I've been surprised by this, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And just, here are just a few things that people have said. Uh, the book brings much of the church history together in a way that helps us understand how imperfect people in difficult situations were part of the restoration in this dispensation, just as it was in others. So that's one response. Here's another one. I do not like reading history. I get bored and it is hard for me to follow sometimes. This book was amazing. It was so easy to get into and hard to stop reading. It tells the full stories, good and not so good, of the events that happened to start the church and how the church continued after, spoiler alert, Joseph Smith is martyred. I'm sorry if I just ruined the book for you. I mean, I promise there are other surprises at the end of the book. Uh, one of which may involve Brigham Young leading the church. Uh, sorry, I just did it again. Uh, and then she, she concluded, I can't wait to read the next, the next three volumes. Um, another, another, I'll do one more here. Um, this book was fascinating to study for Institute this year. I learned so many things that I hadn't known before about the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There were a lot of things that were hard to get through, things that didn't sit well, like polygamy. I can't even imagine what Emma went through as well as everyone else. Restoring the church to the earth was not an easy task for any of the early saints, especially Joseph and Emma. This book gave me a greater appreciation for them and everything they did to help the Lord restore the gospel to the, to the world. And I think, I think these are pretty typical responses to the book. I think a lot of people are, are engaging with the style. Uh, this is a history written for people who don't like history, uh, and, and people are connecting with that. And then also people are finding that even though they are encountering difficult things in these books, difficult issues, controversies, whatever it might be, they are finding their faith uh, strengthened uh, by reading the entire narrative, by, by seeing these things in their historical context and, and understanding them better. So I think, I think we've been very pleased with, with the response to Volume 1, and we expect the same kind of response to Volume 2. So let's talk a little bit about 
Volume 2. The question again is, what can you expect to find in Volume 2? And I'm going to talk about four things specifically that you can expect to find. Uh, the first thing is that you can expect to find the same reader-friendly format and style. So again, this is meant to be a history for people who don't like history. Uh, we are writing it at about a ninth grade reading level, uh, comparable to the Book of Mormon, but I would say the Book of Mormon is a lot more complex than Saints, uh, stylistically. Um, it is written for, uh, as I've said before, it's, it's written for people ages 12 to 112 uh, of uh, diverse educational backgrounds, diverse nationalities. We've, we've written this book for a global church, and uh, so you'll still find the same, same kind of approach, the same kind of epic narrative storyline, uh, that sort of thing, very character-based. Um, and, and I think uh, this has been somewhat of a, a challenge for us to... Uh, with Volume 2, and maybe one of the reasons why it's taken so long to write is that Volume 1 covered about 25 years, virtually 25 years, and Volume 2 now will cover about 47 years. So we're covering a lot of ground. The book begins in 1846 and ends in 1893. Uh, also, uh, as before, this book will appear in 14 languages. Um, there will be audiobooks in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, Again, you'll be able to find it on your Gospel Library or wherever else you might find ebooks. Uh, also, the book, I believe, will also be still sold at uh, $5.75 uh, $5 a copy. So again, very affordable, and uh, I just can't wait till it comes out. It's going to be great. This book is also a little bit longer, so if you felt like Saints, was just, Saints Volume 1 was too short for your liking, we've given you like 50 extra pages, or maybe 20 extra pages. I don't remember exactly what it is. I just know that it's longer. Uh, also, if you're interested here, uh, the book is divided into four sections, just like volume one, four parts. Uh, you, these are the maps that accompany uh, the volume. This kind of gives you an idea of where we go. Uh, the, first, the first part, for example, takes us up to 1852. Midpoint of the book is about 1869 when the railroad comes. Uh, part three will cover the, the raid. Uh, on the, the government's crackdown on polygamy and that sort of thing. Uh, and in the end, uh, we end, uh, like I said, with the, the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. And along the way, we visit a lot of different locations, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, here a little bit later. Uh, another thing that you'll find as you're reading Saints Volume 2 is that you will find that this is a, it provides a richer, more detailed narrative of the church's pioneer era. Uh, as a church, we talk a lot about the pioneers and what they built, but we don't have a good sense all the time of who they were and how they accomplished what they did. Nor do we have a good uh, understanding of the opposition they faced. In fact, oftentimes in the church, when we talk about persecution, we think about uh, the, the persecution in Missouri. Uh, but we don't really know a whole lot about, as a church collectively, we don't know a whole lot about the persecution that occurred uh, throughout the, the remainder of the, the 19th century. Uh, uh, particularly over, over plural marriage. Uh, nor do we oftentimes realize or comprehend how ambitious the early Latter-day Saints were uh, throughout the 19th century and, and how ambitious they were as they came out here to Utah. Uh, volume 2 is not just about how the Saints got to the Salt Lake Valley, but also what they did once they arrived here, uh, once they arrived there. Uh, the narrative also uh, addresses a few more things. I'll go through these individually. This is all part of number 2 of the four things. So one thing that it covers, uh, obviously, is the migration west. Uh, 
So we'll have stories about uh, overland and overseas migration. So if you've already begun reading volume two, you know that not only do we uh, show saints moving west uh, by wagon, but we also have uh, saints going west by ship, uh, specifically the Brooklyn under Sam Brannan. Uh, so we tell that story. Uh, it kind of gives a, a broader view of what the Exodus was like. Uh, we also talk about the handcart migration, uh, including the handcart tragedy of 1856, but we don't just talk about what happened in 1856, but we also talk about other handcart migrations, uh, most of which were far more successful, although, although I don't think it was ever easy to be a handcart pioneer. Uh, then uh, the narrative also takes us to the post-1869 uh, migration by railroad. So oftentimes we talk about the pioneer era ending in 1869, and that's partially true. That's when the overland uh, migration ended by wagons. But after that, saints were still coming very regularly on, uh, on the railroad. And so we'll talk a little bit about some of the railroad saints uh, and how that changed the dynamic of the migration. And then, of course, we'll also be talking about the saints who settled the Intermountain West and the neighboring areas. And so, and so we'll begin to see how the saints moved from the Salt Lake Valley out into neighboring valleys and, 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 and neighboring lands. Uh, uh, volume 2 also discusses the early global missionary efforts of the church. Um, so among the places that we will go to in, in, in Volume 2 include England, uh, California, which may seem like a foreign state to some people. I don't know. No offense. Uh, my sister lives in California. But uh, it's one of the places they went to. Uh, Hawaii, French Polynesia, Denmark, Norway, South Africa, Samoa, uh, Mexico, New Zealand, and more. So we'll begin to see the church, uh, the church's global missionary effort as they send missionaries out and strive to bring people into gathering places. And we won't, we won't uh, just tell the stories of the missionaries, but also of those who converted to the gospel as well from each of these places. So it's kind of a neat, it's a neat story, and really it, it, it requires, if you've never had a chance to study the early missions of the church, it's just fascinating stuff, and, and they definitely deserve a book of their own someday. Uh, we talk about important changes to the church organization. So when Joseph Smith died in uh, 1844, the church was very different than it is today. Uh, and so what we see over the course of volume two is the church becoming a little bit more like it is, uh, like it is today. Uh, some of the things that we cover are the reconstitution of the first presidency under Brigham Young. So when volume one ends, you remember that the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, and this, this is how volume two begins as well, the Quorum of the Twelve is leading the church. And uh, so we see, uh, we see uh, in the first part of, of volume two, uh, the decision to reorganize the first presidency under Brigham Young and two counselors and calling more apostles. Uh, we'll talk about the, organ the reorganization of the Re Re Relief Society in Utah. So the Relief Society uh, pretty much came to an end in Nauvoo, and then it was restarted in the 1850s uh, and, and grew from there. Uh, we'll talk about things like Relief Society halls, uh, which were a 19th century phenomenon that just fascinates me. In fact, I was looking for a used car the other day in Lehigh, Utah. Anybody from Lehigh? A few people. And what was kind of neat, as we were looking for a used car at this old building, I, I saw a historical marker on the side of the building and found out that, that this used car shop was once a Relief Society hall, where Eliza R. Snow spoke in tongues. And I'm like, wow, 
how it's fallen. <laughs> it's very, it was very sad to me. I like, was gloomy for the rest of the day. This is just kind of something that happens to historians when they see th sad things like that. But, but it's kind of neat. This is something that you can still see traces of today. Uh, in fact, these are precursors to what we would call a Relief Society room today in a, in a chapel. So we'll talk about that, those. We'll talk about the rise of the Young Ladies and Young Men's Mutual Improvement Associations. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the 1877 priesthood reorganization, which was one of the last things Brigham Young did as president of the church before he died. This is just a fascinating time. We'll begin to see um, when young men began to take on priesthood office and priesthood responsibilities. We'll see that development occur in, in others as well. And then for those of you who really like the primary, uh, we'll, we'll also learn about the origins of the primary. Uh, and, and we'll tell that story and, and several other changes that have occurred in the church uh, over time. Uh, so that by the end, we can begin to see a more familiar church than, than the one that, that uh, we, we met at the beginning of the book, we meet at the beginning of the book. Um, another thing uh, that may interest you, uh, we'll, we will be talking, and Angela mentioned quite a bit of this on Wednesday, we will be talking uh, at length in this book, we will be, you will find at length in this book, uh, stories about plural marriage and the anti-polygamy uh, crusade. Um, in fact, I would say that plural marriage and the anti-polygamy crusade have a major role in this narrative. Uh, it has kind of a, a, a smaller role in volume one, uh, and it becomes much more important to the saints and to the church uh, once they arrive here in Utah. And so we tell that story. Uh, the volume seeks to show many different perspectives on the practice. So we show uh, situations where it seemed to have worked well, uh, where people seem to have found um, uh, happiness, or they have found satisfaction in the, in the system, or they have found uh, spirit, uh, spiritual experiences through, through the practice. But also we'll tell stories about people who struggled with it, people who found it to be quite difficult to live. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about all kind of perspectives on plural marriage. And then we'll also, uh, at the end of the book, spoiler alert again, we will, uh, we'll, uh, we, we depict the, the manifesto and its immediate aftermath. Although one thing that we will not address in this book, uh, we don't go into post-manifesto plural marriage, that's something that we will be discussing in volume three. So, but we will talk about the, the manifesto and its immediate uh, effect on the saints. Uh, in, in, uh, in connection to that, we, uh, the book also addresses other sensitive historical issues. Uh, and this is uh, a little bit, if you were here yesterday, you heard uh, Matt McBride talk a little bit about how the saints, uh, how saints and the, the church history topics are striving to provide better resources and better understanding for, for historical issues that are, are sensitive to us today, certain controversies uh, in the gospel. Uh, so... Some of the ones that we address, we obviously are, are going to talk about the origins of uh, the, the priesthood restriction. Uh, we talk about race, uh, uh, the restrictions on, on those of, of African descent to the priesthood and to certain temple ordinances uh, to the priesthood. Uh, so we'll talk, uh, we, we tell the story of uh, faithful saints like Jane Manning James, uh, who I believe are most, from, most of us are familiar with. We'll also talk about Samuel and Amanda Chambers another very faithful uh, Latter-day Saint, African-American Latter-day Saint couple uh, living here in Utah. We tell their story. Uh, other things that we address, uh, we'll talk about Latter-day Saint relations to the Native Americans and their lands. Uh, this is not something that we talk much about in the church, uh, 
but we will strive to, to address this uh, to some extent in, in volume two. We'll talk about uh, the fact that when the saints did arrive here in Utah, that other people were already living here, where you know, they occupied the land. Uh, that's problematic. Uh, we talk about uh, certain conflicts with Native Americans, such as the Black Hawk War, the Walker War. But we also tell stories about um, Native Americans who, who joined the church, uh, specifically Sagwitch and uh, the, the, let me get the name, the name straight here, the, the Northwestern Band of, of the Shoshone Nation. Uh, we'll talk about their story. And so if you don't know that one, it's a, it's a very interesting story, a very beautiful story as well. Uh, and of course, we, we will also be talking about the Mountain Meadow Massacre, there, Mountain Meadows Massacre. There is um, an entire chapter devoted on this, this episode. Uh, again, this is a topic that probably requires an entire volume to understand. Uh, fortunately, we have writers like Richard Turley and others who have done quite a bit of, of work in helping us as a church understand what happened uh, better there at the Mountain Meadows Massacre, help us put it not only in context, but also to help us understand um, just what occurred and, 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 and whatnot. Uh, so we'll address that there. Uh, and this has been a, a particular challenge just because it is such a big issue. It's something that a lot of people have questions with. We've tried to uh, provide uh, the best chapter we can for you, and, and I'm, I'm I'm excited to, maybe excited is not the right word, but I'm very interested to see um, responses to this chapter because we've worked very hard and very carefully to, to get it right uh, because we know a lot of people have questions on it. Uh, one thing that we will not be addressing in the narrative is the, the Adam-God theory. Uh, however, there will be published in tandem with the volume a church history topic on the Adam-God theory. And then we have plans to address the controversy itself in volume three in the context of the 1916 statement on the Father and Son uh, put out by the First Presidency, which was in some ways a response to that. So uh, we find occasionally in Saints that it's better to address a controversy when it is being uh, really addressed by the Saints themselves. So for example, some, of, uh, some reviewers of Volume 1 have been upset that we did not uh, tackle, for example, the issue of, of Helen Mark Kimball, Joseph Smith's youngest wife, or the issue of um, controversy surrounding the Book of Abraham, for example. And these, uh, both of these issues are addressed in later volumes. For example, we'll be talking about Helen Kimball in uh, Volume 2, and then we'll be, we'll be addressing the uh, Book of Abraham in Volume 4 in the 1960s, when that really became an issue in the church. Uh, and so that's just one of the practices that we have. Uh, so we will be talking quite a bit about sensitive issues in the book as well. Um, Check the time here. Another thing, uh, we talk about the struggle between church and state. This is just something that it's unavoidable to talk about in this era. Uh, so get ready to learn about 19th century politics. We will talk about the quest for, for Utah statehood, women's suffrage. You'll see, you'll meet some roguish uh, territorial officials. You'll meet scheming judges in corrupt courts. Uh, you'll also, those of you who are Abraham Lincoln fans, you get two Lincoln cameos in this book. So that's something. Also, Susan B. Anthony makes an appearance, Ulysses S. Grant, other American officials, uh, leaders who, who came in contact with the saints over, over time. Um, so we have that. Um, on a more serious note, uh, the book uh, is very much centered on temple building and significant developments in temple worship. Uh, it addresses the, the law of adoption very early on. 
you get to learn a little bit about the endowment house, which was a temporary temple uh, built on Temple Square while the Salt Lake Temple was being built. You'll learn about how in 1877, uh, Brigham Young charged Wilfred Woodruff and others to standardize uh, the temple ordinances so that they could be, for be performed in all the temples in the same way. Uh, you'll learn about the first proxy endowments in the St. George Temple. Uh, and then also, this is, this is kind of neat, one of the neat things about the book is that we have five temple dedications occurring during this era that includes the Nauvoo Temple. So you'll notice at the end of volume one, we did not dedicate fully the Nauvoo Temple. It gets uh, dedicated early in volume two, and then we, we subsequently will have the St. George Temple, the Logan Temple, the Manti Temple, and, and finally the Salt Lake Temple. So we talked just about temple work, and it's a very, very important theme uh, to this book. You'll also meet, for our third thing here, a, a new cast of characters and a few old favorites. One of my most favorite things about working on the Saints Project and writing these stories is being able to meet these people and get to know them on a very personal level. That's in many ways what Saints is all about. Is we want people, to people today, Saints today, to connect with the Saints who came before them. So you may recognize these three gentlemen here. They are three central characters, three of the central characters in the book. Uh, it's Joseph F. Smith, Wilfred Woodruff, and George Q. Cannon. Uh, we get to watch uh, Joseph F. and George Q. grow up. Uh, uh, they begin very, uh, as very young men early in the book, and we, we get to watch them grow and progress in the gospel. Uh, I'd like to talk about just a few other people here. Um, one person that you'll meet is uh, Jonathan Napella, uh, who is an early Hawaiian Latter-day Saint, a prominent Latter-day Saint. He was the, together with George Q. Cannon, he was the co-translator of the Hawaiian Book of Mormon. Uh, he was also the first Hawaiian Latter-day Saint to receive the endowment, and I think he might have also been the first Hawaiian Latter-day Saint to visit Salt Lake City. Uh, he was a church and mission leader, a very faithful man, and he spent the last few years of his life uh, ministering to Latter-day Saints and others who were afflicted uh, with leprosy on the, the Hawaiian island of Molokai. And so we tell his story. And it's, in many ways, it's a very heartbreaking story, but it's also, for me, a very faith-affirming one to, 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 to learn about uh, this man and his dedication to the gospel and the sacrifices he made, not only for us as Latter-day Saints, but to, to those who were truly suffering with, with what must have been just a horrible, horrible disease for them. So we'll, we'll have his story. Another that we'll meet is, and I'm going to butcher this name because I don't speak Spanish, but Desideria Quintanar de Yanez, one of the first Mexican women to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we are able to tell what we know uh, in Saints. Uh, she has a very interesting conversion experience. Uh, she had a vision of a Spanish translation of Parley P. Pratt's A Voice of Warning. And this was before uh, the book had even been translated, or it was in the process of being translated at the time, and she just had no idea. But she had this dream of a book, and she sent her son to Mexico City to find out more about it, and when he arrived there, he met with, he, he just came across, met with, uh, happened upon uh, the men who were translating uh, this book into, uh, into Spanish. And uh, so, so we learned about that, and we learned about the baptism of her and her family, and uh, like I said, we don't know much about her, but we do know from her son... Uh, record her son left that that uh, she died in full faith of Mormonism, and so it's a it's a great story that uh, great story and a faithful a faithful woman that you'll meet in this in this uh, book. 
probably one of my most favorite uh, people that you'll meet is Anna Witso, uh, a Norwegian Latter-day Saint. Uh, you might uh, be more familiar with her oldest son, John A. Witso, who was later um, like the smartest man in the church. He was <laughs> and an apostle. Uh, she was widowed in 1878 after about eight years of marriage. Uh, so she was very young. She was age 28. Uh, baptized in Norway in 1881. Uh, we'll tell that story. We'll talk about how she gathered to Zion with her sons John and Osborne uh, in 1883. Settled in Logan uh, around the time uh, that the Logan Temple was dedicated. She was able to attend that dedication with John. Uh, she lived near other Scandinavian saints. Uh, she encouraged her sons to acquire higher education, and she sent out John. Uh, she sent her son John to Harvard with a group of Latter-day Saints, uh, who were the first group of Latter-day Saints to attend that university. Uh, we tell their story as well. Uh, and she was also very active in the cause of women's suffrage. Uh, that's, that's something that also emerges from the historical record. And then what's really, really exciting, and I can't overstate how exciting this is, is she was a prolific letter writer. Uh, and the, the trouble was, is early on in the process of writing volume two, we really wanted to tell her story, but we didn't have a whole lot of information about her because all of her letters and most of the documents related to, to her, except for an autobiography, or sorry, a biography that John wrote about her, uh, everything that, that she wrote was in Dano-Norwegian. Out of curiosity, how many people speak or read Dano-Norwegian in this room? No one sp speaks or reads Dano-Norwegian. So we thought. And so we just, I mean, we gave it to a few Norwegian speakers who couldn't make heads or tails of it. Uh, they said this is just too complicated to read. And uh, one day I was talking to an old friend of mine uh, who uh, was recently hired at BYU uh, as a, in, their, in their history department. And I knew that she studied German, and I just mentioned that we had all these, these documents in Dano-Norwegian, and we just had no way of translating them. And she goes, well, I read that. I'm like, I've known you for 10 years. How did I not know this? Uh, so we handed her the letters, and she began reading Anna Witso's letters. And she was very detailed, Anna Witso was, in, in, in the letters she wrote. And so uh, we were able to make her a character in Saints because of these translations. And then this is, the, this is where the story gets even cooler. So, so my friend is very busy, uh, and so... Uh, she, she couldn't always get us translations as quickly as we needed them because we were under such a tight deadline. And one day, we got an email from a young man who said that he uh, could, could offer some help in translating. He heard that we needed some help translating Dano-Norwegian. Uh, he had heard this from his uncle, who we had been in contact for with another issue. And uh, he said that, that he could read these letters for us. And, and, and we said, well, we, we've already got someone who can do this. We don't necessarily need anybody. But... On second thought, we're like, actually, we actually need somebody else here. We are really cramped for time. And so we, uh, so we sent the letters to him, and he can translate just very quickly. And the neat thing about this is that we found out that he is actually John A. Witso's, and therefore Anna Witso's descendant. So we have a descendant of John A. Witso and Anna Witso translating these family letters. And it's just, it's amazing how things in this project line up together. Um, so I'm really excited for you to learn her story. One of the neat things as well is that uh, she recorded her experience at the Salt Lake Temple dedication, and she just bears a beautiful testimony of what she experienced there. And so it's, it, it's, she's a really cool person and very faithful Latter-day Saint. We'll also be telling her story in uh, volume three because 
as an older woman, she and her sister go back to Norway as missionaries, as, as some of the first sister missionaries. And, uh, so, so we'll, and we have all of her mission letters, and so we'll be telling that story as well. Um, finally, here's somebody you may recognize. Uh, this is Heber J. Grant as a young man. We tell him. Uh, we show him as a young, young boy. Uh, he's another one who grows up during the volume. He was the son of Jedediah Morgan and Rachel Ivins Grant. His father died when he was nine days old. Uh, he was an early leader of the Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association in the Salt Lake City 13th Ward. And he was also called to the apostleship in 1882 at age 25, around the time this picture was taken. And Angela spoke a little bit about his wife, um, Emily Grant. Emily Wells Grant on Wednesday, and I'm going to actually read you a, a, one of the scenes from Saints about uh, Heber J. Grant as a young man. Uh, this is when he was uh, in the presidency of the 13th Ward uh, Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell this story, read the story. This is an actual scene from Saints Volume 2 uh, about Heber J. Grant as a young man. So later that year, this is 1876, every ward in Salt Lake City held a party to raise money to finish the St. George Temple. Knowing 20-year-old Heber Grant was a reliable young man with many friends, Bishop Edwin Woolley of the 13th Ward asked him to organize his ward's party. I want you to make a success of it, he told Heber. Heber had misgivings about Bishop Woolley's request. I will do my level best, he said, but you must guarantee, if it doesn't pay, to put up the difference. He explained that young people wanted to attend dances where they could waltz. The popular dance involved partners holding each other close while spinning around the dance floor in large circles. Although some people consider the waltz to be less proper than, more, uh, than the more traditional quadrille dances, Brigham Young was known to allow three waltzes per party. <laughs> I know, right? It's really generous. Bishop Woolley disapproved of the dance, however, and had prohibited it at the 13th Ward parties. Well, Bishop Woolley said, you can have your three waltzes. There's another thing, Heber continued. Without a good band at the dance, sorry, with, without a good band for the dance, he would have a hard time selling tickets. You won't allow Olson's quadrille band to play in your ward because the flute player once got drunk, he told the bishop. <laughs> there is only one first-class string band, and that is Olson's. Reluctantly, the bishop, uh, the bishop agreed to let Heber hire the band as well. I have let that young man have everything he wanted, he said as he walked away. I'll roast him in public if he doesn't make a success of it. Heber recruited the bishop's son, Eddie, to help sell tickets and prepare the ward building for the party. They cleared away desks from, lar from a large room, placed borrowed rugs on the floor, and hung pictures of Brigham Young and other church leaders on the walls. And if you can imagine dancing with Brigham Young staring at you the whole time, I can guarantee you they will be dancing the Book of Mormon with the part, as they say today, right? But anyway, sorry, I'm, I digress. Uh, they then recruited several young men to promote the, dances, the dance at their workplace. On the day of the dance, Heber sat at the door with an alphabetical list of everyone who had purchased tickets. No one was allowed inside who had not paid a dollar and a half for a ticket. Then Brigham Young showed up without a ticket. <laughs> I understand this is for the benefit of the St. George Temple, Brigham said. He threw down $10. Is that enough for my ticket? Plenty, said Heber said, unsure if he should give the profit change. <laughs> that, that evening, Heber counted the money while Brigham counted the waltzes. The ward brought in more than $80, which was more than any other ward had collected for the temple, and the young people danced their three waltzes. Before the party ended, however, Heber whispered to the band leader to play a waltz quadrille, a waltz that contained elements of the classic square dance. That's one of the gray areas in the 19th century. 
Uh, as the band began playing, Heber took a seat beside Brigham to hear what he would say when he saw the fourth waltz. Sure enough, as soon as the young people began to dance, Brigham said, they are waltzing. No, Heber explained. When they waltz, they waltz all around the room. This is a quadrille. Brigham looked at Heber and laughed. Oh, you boys, you boys, he said. <laughs> so. so that's the story of young Heber J. Grant. And you may wonder, how do you know all those details? And we know all those details because this is a story that Heber would tell, and he left a good record of it, and his daughter also left a record of it as well. So we have pretty good documentation uh, for this, this kind of humorous, humorous uh, episode. And this is probably as funny as Saints gets. The rest of it's very depressing and sad, so I just, <laughs> just want to warn you. Uh, don't go in expecting that it's all, all laughs, because that's a pretty rare, rare moment there. Um, I think I'm running short on time, so I'm going to, um, let's, let's end here. The fourth thing that I want to say about Volume 2 is that uh, it is, um, I think more than anything else, we hope Volume 2 testifies to the reality of the ongoing restoration of the gospel of Christ. The death of Joseph Smith did not bring an end to the Lord's revelatory interventions into the lives of the saints. Uh, volume 2 continues to show a living God guiding his people to their heavenly home. Uh, and I want to read one more scene. Um, this is a much more serious scene. This takes place uh, near the end of the volume, about a few months before the manifesto. Uh, things are really, 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 really bad for the saints. Uh, it's, it's not easy to be a Latter-day Saint in 1889. Uh, this scene begins in the fall of 1889, several months before the manifesto, as I said. Federal judges have just denied citizenship to several European immigrant saints because of their affiliation with the church. At the hearings, disaffected church members had testified that the church and aspects of the temple endowment were fundamentally anti-American. Government lawyers, moreover, uh, had pointed to old Latter-day Saint sermons and teachings about the last days and the kingdom of God as evidence that the saints disregarded government authority. Wilford and other leaders, I'll, I'll begin the scene now, Wilford and other leaders knew they needed to respond to these claims but responding to statements related to the temple, which church members had made solemn promises not to discuss, would be difficult. In late November, Wilford met with lawyers who advised church leaders to supply the court with more information about the temple. They also recommended that he make an official announcement that no more plural marriage should be solemnized by the church. Wilford did not immediately know how to respond to the lawyer's request. Were such actions truly necessary just to pacify the enemies of the church? He needed time to seek God's will. Night had fallen by the time the lawyers left Wilford alone. For hours, he pondered and prayed for guidance on what to do. He and the saints had come to the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, seeking another chance to establish Zion and gather God's children to the peace and safety of its borders. Now, more than 40 years later, opponents of the church were tearing families apart, stripping men and women of their voting rights, creating obstacles for immigration and the gathering, and now denying the rights of citizenship to people for simply belonging to the church. Before long, the saints could lose even more, including the temples. What would happen then to the salvation and exaltations of God, exaltation of God's children on both sides of the veil? As Wilford prayed, the Lord answered him. I, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, am in your midst, he said. All that I have revealed and promised and decreed concerning the, concerning the generation in which you live shall come to pass, and no power shall stay my hand. As the revelation continued, the Savior did not tell Wilfred exactly what to do, but he promised that all would be well if the saints followed the Spirit. Have faith in God, the Savior said. He will not forsake you. 
I, the Lord, will deliver my saints from the dominion of the wicked in mine own due time and way. Sometimes revelation is mind-shattering. Other times it is a simple reassurance or a nudge in the right direction. When he speaks to us, God is always mindful of our individual agency and its importance in his plan. So sometimes his words are nothing more than a reminder that he, not us, is in charge. If volume two teaches us anything, it is that God will not always stop us from making mistakes, but he will take care of us uh, and direct us as we strive to follow his spirit. This is the story and the message that we hope you get from Saints Volume 2. Thank you. Okay. Can't read that one. Uh, this one is a card that says Utah War. I assume you're asking if we talk about the Utah War in the book, and, and we do. We uh, devote a chapter to the Utah War, uh, as well as the Mormon Reformation and other events surrounding it. Uh, all of that, as you probably know, uh, kind of book it. Uh, serve as, in many ways, bookends to uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So we, we do talk about the Utah War uh, quite a bit. Uh, what part of the series of saints are you and the team working on? So right now, uh, I am working uh, to finish uh, volume two right now, and I'm also in the early processes uh, with Jed Woodworth, who is our managing historian. He and I, and, and Lisa Tate and others, are working uh, to outline and get volume three started up. And while we're doing that, uh, Angela Halstrom, who spoke Wednesday, she is working with uh, James Goldberg, another one of our writers, and um, Dallin Morrow, and uh, a few others uh, to, to get volume four progressing. Uh, and so right now, I'm most, most of the time, I'm dividing my time between volume two and, and volume three, uh, and just enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, is it difficult to withhold info on your current work while promoting the former volume being published. Uh, I guess I don't know quite what that means. Um, I mean, it's, it is, I mean, we do kind of want to be able to get volume two out there and talk so much about what we've got on volume two and, and also kind of keep the excitement up for volume uh, one. So it's, it is a little bit difficult to, to juggle that because we're, we're really still excited about volume one and we want to talk about that and promote that, but we also want to get you excited about volume two and kind of tease you with things about volumes three and four. Um, but I wouldn't say it's particularly difficult. Uh, um, this is an interesting question. It says, talk about how you chose to add or leave out photos. I assume this just means photos in the, in the, in the book. Uh, this was a decision made before I even uh, began the project. In fact, one of the early, from what I understand, one of the early incarnations or ideas for saints was to have more of a, uh, a photograph book where you'd have the history of the church, but it would also just be rich, richly illustrated with, with um, photographs. And I think the decision was ultimately that we'd be able to share more history and tell more stories without the pictures. Um, and so we have tried to put up some of the pictures, uh, include pictures with the gospel topics, the church, sorry, not gospel topics, the church history topic articles. Those usually have uh, illustrations and photographs. And so we kind of 
see that as the medium through which, and also th the videos, we see these as the mediums through which you can get images of these people. Uh, and I think it's a little sad. I really like, whenever I'm writing about someone, I like to have their picture close by so I know what they look like, and uh, you know, whenever that's possible. As you can tell, I really like photography and old photographs. Um, so I think it's a shame that we can't do that, but I also understand why it is what it is. Um, so the future volumes will pretty much appear as the current volume one and two appear. In other words, you'll have the single illustration at the beginning of the chapter, but that's about it. Um, how much time do I have? I'm, I'm fine, okay. Uh, when will we see treatment of the polygamous colonies in northern Mexico? So we do, in volume two, take you to, to northern Mexico. Uh, but we don't go into too much detail. I believe, and I, I can't make any promises, but I think the, the plan is some of the early chapters in um, volume three will cover uh, the later years of the, the, the Mexican colonies uh, to the north. I think right now we have some interest in telling the story of Camilla Kimball, uh, who at the time was Camilla Eyring, uh, who was, I believe, born and raised in the colonies and then left uh, around the time of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, so I believe we will be, be telling more of those stories. We have a little bit of it in volume two, but there's just, like I said, there's so much to cover that we weren't able to go that deeply into the story of the, of the, of the northern colonies in Mexico. But we hope to be able to tell more of that story in volume three. Uh, would you like to respond to any critics of volume one? Sure. Do we have any here? I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll save that for a different time. Uh, you know, I... You know, I, I've heard, I, I mean, I try to keep uh, on top of kind of reading reviews of volume one and, and, hear, and reading what people say, because I think, you know, we, there, there is always room for improvement on our team and our, and our style, uh, our writing style, our approach. I think there's always, there's always room for improvement, so we are open to feedback. Uh, but like I said earlier, I've been really surprised by how um, positive the feedback has been. Uh, about saints. You know, some people um, are upset that it's, it's written at the ninth grade reading level. They want something a little bit more sophisticated. As Matt McBride was talking yesterday, we've tried to, to meet that demand partway through the church history topics. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I, I defend our approach to it because this is a global church and not everybody. And like I, I often tell people, this is the sort of information that people need to have before they have a twelfth grade reading level. I mean, this is a a history for the people, about the people, and we need to make sure that it reaches the people. And I think that we're doing that. And so, so yeah, I'd like to hear your criticisms, but I think, I, I feel pretty strongly that we are doing this the way the Lord wants us to. Thanks for the clap. <laughs> uh, can you share your funniest story in book? In the book, uh, I think I've already shared the funniest story in the book. This one says, are there any funny polygamy stories? Um, I'm trying to think if there are any. I, there, there have got to be funny polygamy stories out there. We just can't, you know, <laughs> can't include them all. Uh, yeah, I don't know that we tell any funny polygamy stories. Angela, can you think of any funny polygamy stories in volume two? No, yeah, sorry. But if you know any funny polygamy stories, afterwards tell me them. I Actually, there's a really funny... Uh, polygamy story in my family history uh, and the ancestor I share with Brian uh, I found a letter recently where he tells a funny story about when he was arrested he was uh, like 72 years old at the time and he was arrested by the marshals and 
you know, they came in late at night like they always did, and, and they, were, they were kind of dumbfounded, though, when they opened the door and saw an old man because they, he was Charles Henry Hales Sr., and they were looking for Charles Henry Hales Jr., but they had to arrest him anyway, and they were just completely embarrassed by the fact that they got the wrong guy. And he said the funny thing was is they took, they, 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 he was living in Spanish Fork, they took him to Provo, and he had a meal on Uncle Sam's dime. So anyway, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, this is an interesting question that I don't have an answer to. How does the sale uh, and use of Saints Volume 1 compare to Gerald Lund's work in the Glory series? I have no idea. Um, I, I, I assume he's sold a lot more books than we have so far just because we've been out for a year, and, and those books have been, I think, out for about 25 years now, if not more. Um, you know, I, I often remember, I, I think we've all had this experience where we've seen people bear testimony about church history after having read Gerald Lund's books. And I, I'm beginning to, every once in a while, I'll, in my ward or, or elsewhere, I hear of people bearing testimony of church history based on what they've learned in Saints. So I think it has, it's having a similar effect on the people. I think one of the nice things about Saints, though, is that you know, everything is historically sourced. We don't have any fictional information in these books. Um, and so they are essentially more reliable. But I think, in many ways, they serve a similar purpose, and that is getting the story of the church out to you know, the average, average reader. So, all right, let's do, let's do one more. There's another work in the glory one. Uh, let's do this one, because I think it's, it's a good question. Sorry, there's so many here. Uh, will the podcast series resume? And if so, when? We do have plans for uh, a, a follow-up series on volume two. So if you enjoyed the podcast on volume one, expect a... Um, a new podcast on volume two around the time that the volume comes out sometime around there. So thank you.